and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ross Taylor. It feels as though something is changing in this country. A vibe shift, if you like. Or am I deluding myself? It's mostly the polling numbers after all. Do I just feel that something's got to change? Am I doing a Neil Kinnock in 1992? Joining me is someone who has his finger on the pulse of public opinion, Ben Walker, who's co-founder of the poll aggregator Britain Elects and senior data journalist at The New Statesman. Welcome to The Bunker, Ben. Yeah, thank you for having me in The Bunker. Is it nuclear safe? Or Well, we hope so. We haven't actually tested that yet. <laughs> okay, we've, we've seen some enormous poll leads for Labour in the last couple of weeks as the government has begun to fall apart. How thick... Do you think that support is? If you look at all the polling right now, you're you're looking at a Labour vote share as high as perhaps fifty something percent, as low maybe as forty five percent, and you know this is this is better than nineteen ninety seven for them. Really, what they're on course for, if an election was held today, would be a victory for them that we haven't really ever seen. Perhaps greater even than nineteen forty five, than ninety seven. How how stable is it? How thick is it? How how sure how sure of it can you be? Um, I would just advise a little bit of caution there's a few things when it comes to polling okay you know you know you know the poll it takes a representative sample of a thousand to two thousand people tries to weight them to be representative of the country uh you know they use census data they they make assumptions about what types of people vote so you know if you got a representative sample of the country and a representative sample of the people who vote it's not always the same thing and that is perhaps, I would say, one of the confusing reasons why some polls underestimated uh, leave back in the referendum in 2016, because they made assumptions about the types of people who would come out to vote. We're still doing that now. And when it comes to current polling, there's a good number of those that backed the Tories in 2019 now saying they are either unsure of their vote or they're leaving politics altogether. You have pretty much half to maybe 60% of the Tory base still sticking with the Tory party. But that's a, that's a big loss. You know, the Tories have lost one in three of their own voters. That, that will guarantee you a pretty big defeat. Now, some polls are saying, you know, some polls are giving you numbers, assuming all of these voters are going to enter apathy and stay in apathy. But we know, based on history, that doesn't always happen during an election campaign, does it? During a campaign, you have uh, your base motivated, you have messages put out to sort of get them back into the thick of it to get them out to vote. And, and so uh, you have some pollsters do that, Opinion do that, Cantar do that. But they're still showing 17-point leads for Labour, 19-point leads for Labour. And, and so it really is quite stunning. How thick is Labour's support? It's good. It is good enough. They are leading in voting intention, as you can see. They are also leading in terms of likability. Keir Starmer is doing better than Liz Truss however long she lasts. Uh, he, she was doing better than Boris Johnson, although not admittedly by much. His likability level, his likability numbers are quite low. And Labour is also ahead of the Conservatives on the issue, the fundamental issue of the economy. We haven't had those Labour leads on those three key metrics since the 1990s, really. This is perhaps the strongest Labour lead we have seen this century, I would say. During the Miliband years, Labour had good 10, 12, 14, 15 point leads. But Miliband was always behind Cameron on likability and Labour never came close to the Tories on the economy. This is, yeah, if you want to talk about vibe shifts, this is one of those vibe shifts. Do you think the overwhelming sentiment, though, is just stop this madness rather than actual enthusiasm for the Labour Party? Oh, yeah. Oh, 100%. Well, I, w- I, would, I would say 100%, but I would also say perhaps... Um, 
During the days when, when Keir Starmer led Boris Johnson, the vast majority of people who were plumping for Keir Starmer over Johnson were saying they were doing this because they hated Johnson more than they liked Keir. That still, I would say, exists. The, va- the majority of voters turning to Labour are turning to Labour because they don't like the government. They want the alternative. That's it. You know, if you copied and pasted David Cameron's slogans from 2008, 9, 10 of, you know, it's a time for a change, you know, a new glitzy, glossy kind of party is ready to take charge. And you just rebranded that with the Labour colours. You have the message that is right, proper, right suited uh, for, the, for the country right now. I would say a, a majority of the country is more that, that are, that are uh, disaffected with the Conservatives are turning to Labour because they're more disaffected with Conservatives than the old Labour. Don't get me wrong. Labour still has brand problems. Labour still has a favourability issue. The Labour brand isn't as popular as it used to be in the days or the early days, rather, of new Labour. There are still fundamental issues at stake. But you lead on the economy, you lead on likability, you lead on voting attention, you're doing well enough to perhaps park those worries just for a little while, I'd say. But, you know, please do do pay attention to them if you want to be sure of this lead, if indeed we get a new uh, Conservative Party leader. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. For the past seven years... Brexit and the quarrels over what Brexit meant, and then the desire to get it done, whatever that meant, have dominated British politics. Have those distracted us from how the country is changing? Yes and no, because you, you started, you gave your introduction talking about a vibe shift, and we are in we are in an era of vibe shifts, I suppose. And when did it begin? I would say it sort of began after the expenses scandal, or just as the coalition government came in. But we, we've had multiple vibe shifts. We've had a cultural shift. We've had the shift towards being more accepting of things like gay marriage. We've become a, the new, if you want to talk about culture war, the idea of people needing to have opinion on trans people is a new vibe. It's a new culture fight or, or discussion. I think Brexit is just part of that. And what Brexit was, you know, when you think of Brexit, you do think of Britain's relationship with the European Union, trading issues, roots, and all that kind of stuff. But what Brexit meant to a lot of voters was more so an issue of cultural identity. It was more so perception of control as well. When you live in an era of globalization, you do you do tend to feel a feeling, by the way, replicated in Italy, in, in Greece, in France, and, and most certainly in the United States, this feeling that you have lost control. And so when a campaign comes along and says, we will take back control, that isn't just Brexit. That isn't just about Britain's relationship with the European Union. And that isn't just about immigration, though that played a huge key role. That is about a a, a, a desire by voters to, quote, take back control. It, it is a line that has great resonance. You know, again, if the Labour Party used take back control, it would do quite well uh, as a campaign slogan today. Those advocates for Brexit who were, who to their credit, had some finger on the pulse of public opinion in the early 2010s, Nigel Farage with immigration, because immigration was a big issue to a lot of voters. And he was probably perhaps the only politician talking about it in a way that 
good number, not all of them, a good number of voters would agree with. There was one poll in 2014, which had like 30 to 40% of Britons saying UKIP had the right policies on immigration. We, 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 different times, different times we have, we have shifted since then. And there's been a lot of politicians who've taken the Brexit vote and thought they were right then and think they can be right now. The reality is that you can't condense Brexit, the push for Brexit, the great phalanx of voters that backed Brexit. You can't condense it down to just anxiety over immigration. It was a lot of things. It was anxiety over globalization. It was a perception of loss of control. It was um, a disaffection with local services, local government feeling powerless to do anything. And I, 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 if you have to give credit, if you want to give credit, you can give it to, the, to, to, to Boris Johnson for re- recognizing that leveling up is a resonant issue for which a lot of voters, a lot of Leave voters, wanted, still want, and will continue to want whatever happens to the Conservative Party. So, yeah, we have condensed Brexit down to these binary things. Leave or remain. Progressive nationalist. When the reality is it's a lot more complicated than that. It's a lot. It's, it's really down to personal anxiety of where you are in society, I would say. Another thing that's happened over the last few years is we've become a lot more interested engaged with generational divides. I mean, to be honest, I never thought of myself as Generation X until a couple of years ago, but now my daughter, who's Gen Z, mocks me for it. Are there differences between the generations that are philosophical rather than just material, by which I mean, obviously, younger people are suffering in our society uh, with the cost of housing and their lives being made more difficult by various government policies. But are they thinking differently about politics than the rest of the country? That is, a, that is a good question. And I would actually, you've just given me an idea for something I should write about for the New Statesman. <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, goodness me. Uh, you know what? I would say, you want to talk about philo- philosophical misses material. I think it's based on just what you experienced growing up. What has defined you growing up? What, what you have seen and experienced and what, what perhaps your ambitions are. I think it's fair to say that perhaps your ambitions or your ambitions when you were growing up might be different to where your daughter's ambitions are in terms of thinking quite fundamentally. Home ownership is one thing. What is the likelihood? The likelihood of people of your generation owning a home was a lot higher. It still is high. The likelihood of people of my generation, I'm 26, I should say, owning a home is, is a lot lower. And so our priorities shift. The idea of saving for a home, settling down with a family at X age isn't as there or isn't as great a pull as it used to be. And it allows our priorities and it allows our perceptions to shift further afield. Globalization has allowed us to consider about the idea of relationships overseas or look, looking overseas for new adventures and, and all that kind of stuff. And so it does just come down, I think, to the fundamental experience of what you see and what, what, what you are like. You could think of some examples here. Younger Brits are increasingly or decreasingly less inclined to identify with national identities. They're more inclined to identify with personal identities. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's belonging. It's a sense of belonging. I don't want to be uh, obtuse, but a voter identifying strongly with St. George's Cross and the British flag is, is similar to someone discovering their gender and sexual identity because they're finding a belonging for themselves. They're sticking to it and they're finding their tribe. So what we consider to be tribes are completely different. It's more personal. It's a bit more digital than it used to be. It's more localized. You know, you're more likely to be proud of your city than are your county, than your country. Young people, if they move to Bristol or if they move to a city, they're more likely to be proud of that city than they are to be of the, city, the country. That's something we perhaps didn't really see 
say, 30 to 40 years ago, partly because, well, during the 1980s, cities like Leeds, Manchester and Liverpool were in quite a deprived state and did need a lot of investment. It's a mix of experience and it's this this evolution into being a lot more personal rather than a lot more individual rather than communal, if that makes sense. Does the climate emergency play into that? Because obviously there's nothing really nationalist about that. That is a global Mm. problem. And the people who identify with that struggle are going to come from all over the world. And you may notice um, anxiety over the environment, anxiety over the climate emergency, over global warming, the desire to do something isn't just the reserve of the people you see protesting on the roads, standing in front of cars and all the rest of it. It transcends a lot of voter groups. If you want to look at the polling yourself, you do so-called red wall polling, you'll find anxiety over the environment is just as high as it is in, say, central London or inner cities or Cambridge or Oxford or wherever. It is there. But the way in which you go about solving it or doing something about it, I would say is a little bit different. Younger voters are more likely to be a bit more activist, but I, I would say that was that was present in the 1960s and 70s as well, wasn't it? So that isn't much of a difference. But younger voters, because they are less inclined to identify with national identities and more personal identities, more human uh, perception of humankind, they perhaps may be more active and may stay active as they enter the 20s and 30s and 40s. You know, It's easy to always say young people will always be young in, in terms of you know, young people will always be left-wing. Young people will always be left-wing activists. We always like to say that for every generation. I do get the impression, though, with the onset of globalization in a way that, that drags you up to be as individualistic as possible, I think it may encourage a backlash of sorts to stay activists and be activists well into your 30s and 40s. Let's not forget, by the way, that in the 2017 election, the biggest surge uh, in turnout and support for Labour didn't come from the 18 to 24-year-olds. It came from the 25 to 34-year-olds, those people who were just about trying to get on the housing ladder, those people who were just about settling down. These assumptions we make about young versus old, I think, are becoming slightly outdated, really. Is the way the labour market works having an effect as well? Because it's not hard to get a job if you want one in most places at the moment. And in, indeed, you sometimes hear grumbles from places like the FT that young people are not loyal to their workplace. They might want to work at home more often. They move on very quickly. They are interested in changing the culture of the organisation in a way that older generations did not dare to think of doing. Is that playing into it as well? Yeah, because again, like I say, globalization, it, it has encouraged, dragged you up to be more individualistic than ever. And in this, I don't know how, how, how many pieces or news articles you see about social mobility in Britain being naff, but geographically mobile, young people most certainly are. I remember, right, for those who don't know, I'm from, uh, I'm from Harrogate in Yorkshire, hence the posh voice, though I am quite proudly Northern. And all of my friends in high school at the time, they wanted to get get on somewhere and do something better than just, you know, a business park, retail park job. It's London. You go to London. If you wanted to, you know, lift your eyes further afield, it will be down south. It will be in London. It will be you are a lone ranger sorting out your life, trying to do something for yourself. OK, your loyalty to your county, Yorkshire. Yorkshire has a very strong uh, local identity, by the way. Your loyalty to your town. It's not there. What would it would? Should it be there? I don't 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 personally don't think so but it, it always helps to have some perception of roots so you can but you're not in london are you because you're, you're going to stand as a council candidate in chester next year 
I am indeed, yeah, yeah. And um, mind you, my mum was from Chester, so that is, I'm going to milk that for every last vote, really. I am not local, I've been here six years, but my mum was here, so I'm going to try that. But yeah, home is wherever you find it. I only moved to Chester because I found university here, and I love it here, and it's become my home now. I'm an adopted Cestrian born Yorkshireman, I suppose. So with COVID as well, I mean, obviously a massive experience for the whole of society, but in many ways, especially for young people. Are you seeing, do you think, a reaction to lockdowns, to the way that that people couldn't do the things they wanted? Do you feel that people are trying to make up for lost time? Oh, yeah. Do things because you can do it rather than you should do it. You're allowed to do it. So I should do it. You know, that's the, that kind of culture. I'm not sure. I think I think what COVID did and what the lockdowns did was kind of expose already pre-existent anxieties and um, irritations about contemporary society and it sort of brought them to the fore. Hybrid work is now a lot more common and a lot of young people, a lot of um, you know workers generally are a lot more determined to defend hybrid slash homeworking than they otherwise would be because they are realizing that if you can do it in lockdown, if you can do it then, why can't you do it now? I feel a lot of voters are increasingly becoming strained with the old rules, the old order, the old, you know, what you can and what you can't do because we've always done it like that. COVID showed things can change. And I think voters are increasingly becoming a little bit uh, yeah, irritated with that too. You can, you can see that in some polling. You do notice uh, Britain generally is a lot more, you know, it's pro-public ownership. It's a lot of all of those things, but it requires the party advocating it to be competent. This is one of the main reasons why Jeremy Corbyn's Labour just didn't do well, was because it advocated for public ownership, a smorgasbord of stuff, but no one trusted them to deliver in a, in a way that would preserve the pound in your pocket your, you know, your financial standing and all the rest of it. We are now getting, I think, to a stage post-COVID, COVID kind of accelerated it, where our tolerance for status quo is fraying a little bit. And that, that's happening, I think, cross-demographic. It, it is perhaps one of the reasons why Labour is doing so well at the moment. Voters have reached the cliff. They, they've tipped things over. They, they, they are, I suppose, at the end of their tether. What should we call this new era? I've heard of the age of uncertainty, but in a way that it almost seems a bit of a cop out as a description. Do you have a better one that we can use? Age of uncertainty? That's no, no. no. <laughs> that's just that's a cop out because because there will be certainty one day. There will be a time when a party is in power for you know a number of years with one prime minister. That's that is coming. We know it. it we know it is. But that prime minister won't change the age we are in. We had post-war Britain. Now that that era is over, we are in post-COVID Britain, but I, perhaps that doesn't cover it or doesn't explain it well enough. COVID sort of brought to the fore irritations, anxieties with our status quo, exacerbate them further. The Leave vote did. Yeah, that's pre-COVID. The financial crash sort of, sort of, I suppose, started it a little bit. I don't know, the new era we're talking about, the new vibe... It, Depends what year. It depends what you're looking at, really, because it could have started after 9-11, obviously, with the war on terror. It could have started after the financial crash with the nativism, the rise of anti-immigration sentiment, which still exists, by the way. It's still there. Populism is not a dead a dead thing. It's just been, in Britain at least, it's owned by the Conservatives, and a lot of them are now apathetic with the government. They're, they're just not going to vote, but they will come out to vote again one day. Again, it's a very long, convoluted answer, but yeah, we are in. We're, this is post-COVID Britain. Post-war Britain is over. 
post-COVID Britain of hybrid working, of looking to reshape our relationship with with the mass economy is is coming. We don't know in what way it will come. I don't know. Age of uncertainty, it, we're always in an age of uncertainty, aren't we? It's always there. You know, during the long years of Tony Blair, uh, the age of uncertainty with the West's relationship with Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, the axis of evil and Iran as well. That was there. There was a lot of uncertainty there. There's always uncertainty. You're right. We need a better term, don't we? If, if listeners have got any suggestions, tweet them to uh, The Bunker and we'll, we'll share them. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. If you'd like to support the team and help us make more podcasts, just search for Patreon Bunker Podcast and choose which of the supporter tiers you'd like. There's free merch from the second tier upwards. I'm Ros Taylor. The Bunker will be back tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>